No news is good news, as they say. That's certainly how it had been for residents of Southern California, whose nightly routine was continually interrupted by more details about this night stalker. People knew they had to be careful. They had to lock up their doors and windows and be on the lookout. But no one's perfect. Sometimes you forget, or maybe your window isn't as strong as you thought it was. These are just the opportunities the killer had a knack for finding. And when he found them, he was sure to exploit them. I'm Laura. I'm here with my best friend Marina, and this is Grim. got interrupted uh with a pea bony last week yeah so we're jumping back into night stalker we are and i i forgot how like even last night i slept with my window <laughs> open so please tell me again all of the horrible deaths that i'm going to die yeah, but i will that's actually the entire episode is okay. all of that um and maybe i'll i'll start with a trigger warning which i will just do in english this time <laughs> um shout out to erica for thinking that we had recorded a babble <laughs> which really really tickled me varning um, <laughs> like i said i didn't know if that meant i had a really good accent and it was like i was the teacher or i had a really bad accent they're like wow you definitely need to take yeah, those you classes. need babble i think that's it's probably that one okay yeah, yeah. probably mm-hmm. uh so trigger warning in all seriousness this is the continuation of part one of night stalker which if you listen to that you know that you need the trigger warning but i just want to say it there are all sorts of bad things in this um and i don't sugarcoat much so no uh, marina must stay but if you if all of you listening would like to pass i understand mm-hmm. so um before we get into all of that fun stuff we can do the real fun stuff which is our patreon shout out we have six patreons to shout out for this episode which you is guys super are the exciting best yeah I, we always doubt ourselves when we're looking at the latest to write down before we get into the episode, but you guys are awesome. So we thank love you. you. Uh, we'll start with Jordan F. Jordan F. Yay, Woo! Jordan. We, we love, love you. you. Thank you. Cindy R. Cindy, Cindy R. Woo! Woo! Thank you we so love much. You. We thank love you. you. Monica from Friends? Question mark. Monica from Friends. We love you. <laughs> it just says Monica, so I decided to say Monica from Friends, but she just Monica, said Monica. Monica, a.k.a. Madonna, a.k.a. Monica from Friends. We love you. <laughs> Angela K. Angela Woo! K. Angela, we love we you. Love thank you, you thank so you. much. Matea. Matea. We Woo! love you. We love you. And shout out for making sure that we pronounce your name right. I hope Woo-hoo! I did it right. And Bridget J. Yeah, Woo! Bridget J. Bridget, we love you. We love you. Seriously, thank you. We love you. It's we super appreciate it, and um, several of you have joined the Discord, I think, yes. which is awesome. Um, mm-hmm. And I hope you're having fun because we have fun there. Yeah, so. I know Matea jumped right on. Yeah, I remember her specifically. Yes. Also, every time we say shout out, you know, what I think of I think of that song. This is a shout out to my ex, <laughs> and that's all I know that I remember. Woo! <laughs> thank yeah, you. You're welcome. You, it's early for a reference, <laughs> but but thank you. Do you know that song? I'm sure I do, Marina. I'm sure I do. I thought you were going to say, I'm sure I don't. <laughs> well, I was going to try to be nice today. Cause... I wanted to get in real early with the singing and the references you yeah, don't get. Because it will not be appropriate later. For pe- yeah, for people that are going to leave. Now yeah, you, you get it. You pack it in all up front. You're That's welcome. Very true. Very true. <laughs> Uh, I will also, as a reminder, uh, I did give this, speaking of shout outs, I, I will give the shout out again for the book I read, uh, which was The Night Stalker by Philip Carlo, because it is an immense, just 
treasure trove of information that I'm sure he worked really hard to pull that together. I can't, I mean, think, think about creating a podcast episode, how much work we do just for that. I can only imagine to put a thorough, well-researched, well-documented 600 page book together is nuts. So. Uh, yeah. I struggle organizing 10 pages yeah, of notes for an episode. 600 pages. I think my brain would cease to function. Yeah. yeah it would, it would be okay. Maybe if it were my only job. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but that extra full-time job really gets you. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So as a reminder, when we were last together, I told you about the Night Stalker's first 13 victims, eight of whom died. The last person I told you about was Mary Louise Cannon, the 75-year-old widow whose neighbors had the misfortune of stumbling across the bloody crime scene. Was that the one with the window? <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no, I meant they yes. saw the window that was like in the yard and they were like banging yes. on it. Okay. Yep. yep. All right. And I remember the Avia sneakers. <laughs> yes. I was going to say, because every single one of these has a window. I, in it, yes, I no. meant to be more specific. <laughs> Is this the one with the woman in it? <laughs> Did people die? <laughs> Is this true crime? <laughs> Our hero detectives, Frank Salerno and Gil Carrillo, were convinced that this was indeed the work of a serial killer, despite the slight variations in the scenes. Gil and Frank were confident enough in their belief that they got Captain Grimm, we love our Captain Grimm, we love Captain to Grimm. approve a whole team. Now the real investigation could begin, but sadly not without more lives lost. Mm. So again, opting to hide in plain sight, the killer went back to Arcadia. He drove through another wealthy, quiet neighborhood in another stolen car, looking for the right place to stop. He slowed as he approached the all-white ranch-style house with nice, curtainless picture windows, <laughs> all the better to stalk you with. Damn it! The house was dark, so he went around back to try his luck. No dice. The back door was locked. On the way back to his car, something told him to turn around and walk up the 18 red brick steps to the front door. It was Satan leading him, right? Yep. Success. The killer slipped in through the unlocked door and crept silently into the house. Who leaves their front door unlocked? Uh, Steve and Anna Bennett, um, who were the homeowners. They were sound asleep. Steve was a hardworking executive at Southern California Gas, but that night he and his wife had had another couple over for the 4th of July, while their daughter Whitney, who was 16 with a fresh new driver's license, was out with friends. To answer your question, the two adult couples had gone out to watch fireworks and returned through the front door, not locking it, and their guests had left through the back door, and then the Bennets went to sleep, just completely forgetting about the front door. Were they leaving it open for their daughter? Maybe? No, she she came back in through the rear. Oh. Um, so Whitney had accidentally stayed out past curfew and rushed back home, arriving around 1 a.m. She let herself in through the back door, so that must just be their normal entry and exit, and stopped in the kitchen to put her things down. She picked up a check that her dad had left her, wrote him a thank you note, and then went to bed. Mm. Whitney's bedroom was right off the front entry. Her parents' room was in the rear of the house. The intruder checked both rooms before taking any action. He was still bothered by the audacity of that other woman who had tried to kill him. After confirming that everyone in the house was asleep, he decided to add another weapon to his arsenal. He went back out to his car, grabbed his tire iron, and went back in, heading straight for Whitney's bedroom. No. Without hesitation... He held his hand over her mouth and struck her repeatedly in the head with the tire iron. With the blue-eyed, brown-haired girl alive but incapacitated, he pondered. Determining that he'd prefer to kill her with a knife, he went into the Bennett's kitchen in search of the perfect blade. But none were hit to his liking. Disappointed, he returned to Whitney's room, 
settling on raping her instead. He's so sick. Super disgusting, especially for this thought. Before he began, he thought she might wake up and start screaming, waking her parents. So actually he should kill her first. Jesus. He grabbed a nearby telephone cord and straddled Whitney, who was lying unconscious on her stomach, still bleeding profusely from the blows to her head. He wrapped the cord around her neck and began to pull when suddenly he saw sparks coming from the wire. He dropped it, convinced that this was actually his ultimate enemy, Jesus Christ himself, who was intervening. Completely freaked out, the intruder jumped off of Whitney and quickly left through her bedroom window. Oh my God, did she survive? Mm-hmm. Oh, Whitney. Yeah. A few hours later, as the sky was beginning to light up for the day, Whitney woke up with a pounding headache surrounded by blood. She immediately screamed for her parents, who came running into what have, must have been the most insane scene. They immediately called 911. Whitney had absolutely no recollection of what had happened to her. Well, she was asleep when he started hitting her in the head. Yep. And then she went unconscious. So she just had no idea what happened. Did she have a TBI? I'm sure that she did. Um, She had been beaten within an inch of her life. Doctor said it was a miracle that she was alive. She had been struck more than 20 times and needed 478 stitches. Holy shit. Maybe it was Jesus Christ himself intervening. Seriously. Holy shit. Yeah. It is just unreal that she was, that she survived. I am aghast. Mm-hmm. So Frank and Gil were called in. Again, despite the new weapon, they were convinced it was their night stalker. They searched for tracks in the flower beds surrounding the house, but came up empty. They did recover the tire iron, and as they processed Whitney's bedroom, they happened upon that familiar Avia shoe print cast in blood on the corner of Whitney's pink comforter. Mm. The next day, the detectives went to talk to Whitney, who, first of all, the fact that she was even talking is amazing. And she bravely told them her limited account of what happened again. Unreal. Had basically no memory. Yeah. They added this to their growing pile and continued their investigation, which included still reviewing hundreds of reports of other assaults, just looking for similarities. They came across a report for a woman named Carol Kyle, whose name might be familiar from our last episode. And they, once they read that her attacker, who had a bad smell about him, had disabled the phone, sodomized her, and ransacked her home, they felt that they had found another one of the Night Stalker's victims. So they contacted Carol, had her do another sketch, and then compared it to the sketch they had had Maria Hernandez, who was one of the first ones I told you about, mm-hmm. um, complete. The two were clearly the same person. Oh my gosh. So they were onto something. But the list continued to grow. Riding his success from sticking to the same areas, the killer returned to Monterey Park, where he'd attacked Dale Okazaki, Maria Hernandez, Veronica Yu, and Bill and Lillian Joy. Again, he drove aimlessly in a stolen car until it just felt right to stop. He parked in front of the pale yellow home of 61-year-old Joyce Lucille Nelson. Joyce had lived in this home for nearly 40 years, half of it by herself after divorcing her husband. She worked in the production line at the Coast Envelope Company for nearly all of her career, and she was looking forward to retiring. She had two sons, Dale and Dawn, and five grandchildren, whom she would join on the floor for board games and even the occasional gymnastics trick. The killer walked up to Joyce's front door, hoping he'd have the same luck as he'd had at the Bennetts just two days before, but it was locked. He walked along the side of the house in the flower beds and tried the window. Unlocked. He took out the screen and climbed in. In front of him, he saw Joyce asleep on the couch. After quickly checking to make sure there was no one else in the house, he put his twenty-two to her head and woke her up. She was shocked, but she knew who he was. She'd heard of him, and in fact, her son Don had suggested she put bars on her windows. 
but she'd oh. scoffed, saying she wouldn't be a prisoner in her own home. Oh, my gosh. The intruder grabbed her by the hair and pulled her towards the bedroom. Joyce fought her hardest, which just made the killer angry. He punched her over and over and over again, knocking her out. He finally got her to the bed where he kicked her in the face so hard that he left a clear imprint of his shoe. <gasps> of course, the Avia. Oh, my God. Joyce did not survive. I, I said this the last episode. Mm-hmm. If you kill me right before I retire, I'm going to haunt your ass mm-hmm. so hard. I thought of that when I was writing this. Like, and it, so it's so hard. true. It's so sad because it should be just the the golden years, right, the, of your life with your kids and grandkids. And and then I was also thinking if you said that they were, like, 14 or 20, like, it's still... it's yeah. So it pretty much sucks to take anybody's mm-hmm. life. Don't do that. Yeah. But seriously, mm-hmm. if I work my whole freaking life and you yeah. murder me right before I retire, oh, yeah. you better... You can't hide. No. You no, can't hide. No, you'll be back haunting telephone cords that he'll... Ghosty you know, Marina's yeah. coming. I'm coming. <laughs> The killer ransacked her home for valuables, took what he wanted, and left. Aww. But he wasn't satisfied for the night. He still wanted sex and murder. Insane! Mm-hmm. He went for a drive to find his next victim, ultimately coming back to Monterey Park. Hoping he'd picked better this time, he stopped in front of another quaint yellow home. He walked around the house and tried the windows, but they were locked tight, as were both the front and back doors. But he was in luck. He spotted another doggy door, just like at Carol Kyle's house. He reached through, unlocked the door, and he was in. Nobody get a doggy door. No. Get rid of your doggy doors if you have them right now. Listen, learn, and stay alive. Get rid of your doggy doors. I really think that's a good idea for, obviously, for the killer aspect, but also uh, other animals I would be worried about. Yeah, it makes me think of that commercial. (laughs) Sorry, that (laughs) raccoons. Here, kitty, kitty. snuggles with mama. (laughs) Oh, I needed that laugh. Yep. (laughs) Thank you for getting that reference. Yeah, that one I got. You got got bad commercial or great commercials. I'm all over it. Okay. Okay. That's about it, though. (laughs) As was his habit now, he cleared the house. He found 63-year-old Sophie Dickman asleep in her bed, the rest of the house empty. He flipped on the lights and quickly threw his hand over her mouth and put the gun to her head, telling her not to look at him and not to make a sound or he'd kill her. She complied. Sophie was a psychiatric nurse who was all too familiar with how volatile someone like the Night Stalker was. He put a pillowcase over her head and handcuffs on her wrists and dragged her to the bathroom where he had her sit on the floor. He then demanded she tell him where her valuables were. Again, she complied, except for the diamond ring she had on her finger. While, she, while he was rifling through the house, she quietly took off the ring and tried to throw it behind the sink, but he caught her. Oh. Angry now, he dragged her back to the bedroom, ripped her nightgown off, and when he attempted to rape her, he was unable to perform. Angrier still at this point, he tried to sodomize her, again, unable to. Somehow, Sophie kept calm, an ability that likely saved her life. Oh my gosh. Although the intruder was furious and frustrated, he gave up just grabbing the pillowcase stuffed full of valuables and left. Mm-hmm. I would assume that it would be working as a psychiatric nurse. Yes, that she just that knew how just, to defuse yes. the situation. And I just, it's one thing to do that in your profession with people that you are, you know, you have protection around and, um, yeah, but, but you're in danger every day dealing with that's patients true. like that. So yeah. Yeah. she sensed the danger, but was able to keep it down. Oh my I just, God. I, I, I know that's like my I famous line. I can't imagine, but that's, I can't. It's unfathomable. (laughs) It is. Once he was gone, Sophie still had the handcuffs on and was weak from the attack. It was all she could do to pull herself up to the bedroom window, open it, and shout feebly, hoping someone would hear. 
despite the early hour, her neighbor, who happened to be a deputy, Linda Arthur, happened to hear Sophie's shouts. She immediately ran to Sophie's assistance and called 911. Oh my gosh. Again, Gil and Frank were called, but actually not by the Monterey Police Department. We still had this little problem of the jurisdiction, people wanting Mm, to not mm -hmm. call in others. But it was actually Linda, who was a friend of Gil's, that alerted the men to the situation. Got to play nice in the sandbox, guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Well, maybe not in this one because they got there anyway, but in general, it could save lives. Right. So That happened with Ted Bundy, too. Yeah. Yeah. The only similarities in Sophie's attack and the others were the severed telephone line and the ransacked home. As they were searching the yard for any identifiable shoe prints, they got another call. Joyce's body had been found, along with the Avia shoe print on her face, which is just insane. I don't, as an aside. I don't know how you kick someone that hard. <sighs> Knowing this was a critical piece of evidence, Gil and Frank wanted to know, much like Marina did in part one, how many people might have been wearing that exact kind of shoe in this particular size. Mm-hmm. Their night stalker was in a distinctive size 11 and a half. It turned out that only 1,354 pairs of the Avia shoe had been made at all. Only six of those had made it to California and been sold in L.A. Guess how many of those were a size 11 and a half? Two. One. One. Yep. I didn't. I think you told me that last week, but I, I already <laughs> forgot. I thought it would be more than that. Just one. So they wow. just had to find the man wearing these size 11 and a half Avia shoes. Damn. Now, obviously, that wasn't an easy task, and the detectives continued the other threads of their investigation. They spoke with Sophie and heard her account of what happened. The same day, they finally got access to the car that had been recovered after Veronica Yu's attack. You remember way back, they had gotten the license plate from the people who had tried to help Veronica, but they couldn't find the car. Um, So Gil and Frank got access to that, but it had been left so long in the hot sun that any prints that might have been there were gone. Meanwhile, the killer continued on. From all the news reports, he was aware that they were looking for him, but he was unperturbed. On July 20th, he stole another car and cruised down the freeway. This time, he headed north to Glendale, took a random exit, and began searching for the perfect street. Just a block from the freeway, he stopped in front of the house of Leela and Max Needing. It was another beige stucco home, well-kept and quiet. Max and Leela were proud of their home. They'd work really hard for it. Max, 68, owned a service station, and Leela, 66, worked for worked security for Robin, Robinson's department store. Why are they all in their 60s? I, I don't know, because he's, <clears throat> he's choosing these at random, and I don't understand how he keeps choosing like this, this same age range, with some exceptions, which threw the police off, but yeah, I don't know. It's bizarre. It is. It's Satan. Satan's guiding Guiding him. him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know what? I'm not going to discount it at this point. Yeah, exactly. You have to be tied up with Satan to do all this. Mm -hmm. So the two had been married for 47 years. They were high school sweethearts. I know. I know. They had three children and 13 grandchildren and they spent their days catching a Dodgers or Lakers game on the radio when Max wasn't at the Glendale Seventh Day Adventist Church where he was a deacon. Rise and shine, motherfuckers. The couple were shaken from their sleep and screamed. No. Before they knew what was happening, the killer swung his new toy, a giant, sharp machete. What the And fuck? slashed at Max's throat, incapacitating him, but not killing him. Who let him buy that? I don't know. I think he's not purchasing any of these things outright. He's, he's on the black market for all this stuff. He then swung at Leela, but missed. Realizing this weapon was less effective, he pulled out his twenty-two 
put it to Max's head and pulled the trigger. It jammed. Max tried to beg for his life, but the killer reloaded the gun, put it back to Max's temple, and this time had no trouble. Oh, no. Leela screamed, but the killer quickly turned, shooting her in the face three times. Oh, no. For good measure, he sliced and stabbed them both a few times and then ransacked the home. Oh, my gosh. As quickly as it had started, it was over. Going out to his car, he listened to the shots fired call go out on the police scanner he carried. See, I'm really sad the way that you're telling this because at the beginning of every paragraph, mm-hmm. I'm like, it's okay because they're going to, they'll be the two that survived <laughs> just like the other one. And then you're like, and he shot him in the face. Yeah. And then I'm sad. Yeah. But then you also never know because it's just like the miracles that are happening. I mean, it's, I know. these people should never have been subjected to this, obviously. Right. But some of the people that survived, I, I don't understand how they survived. So you really have no idea yeah. which way it's going to go. I do not. Charged by the successful homicides, the killer was not done for the night again. Oh, my God. He got back on the freeway and drove further north to the town of Sun Valley. Although the people in this town had heard of the horrific crimes for their self, nothing had happened this far out of L.A. They thought they were safe. The killer stopped on Charbonne Street. He parked the car and got out, leaving the machete in the car as he felt it was too much work. In the shadows, he walked up to the house of Chainarong and Samkid Kovananth. Chainarong and Samkid were both immigrants from Thailand who'd come to California 10 years ago, but didn't meet until they both arrived in L.A. Chainarong worked as a parking attendant, and the two had an 8-year-old boy and a 2-year-old girl. They were a tight-knit, loving family, and Chainarong loved to garden, which showed in the beautiful landscaping around the Kavananth house. As he walked around the outside of the house, the intruder tried the windows, which were all locked, but when he got to the back, he found one of the sliding doors unlocked. Again, the residents of Sun Valley thought they were safe. Once he was inside, he stopped a moment to let his eyes acclimate. Samkid was asleep on the couch in the den, and being a light sleeper, she woke up as the man approached. Before she could react, he put the gun to her head and told her not to make a sound or he'd kill her. Interestingly, he left her on the couch while he went to canvas the rest of the house, which I found surprising given his paranoia that someone was going to get one over on him. That's a bold choice. I thought so, too. He went first to the children's bedrooms, confirming they weren't awake, and then approached the still-sleeping Chainarong. He walked right up to the kind, innocent father, put put the gun to his head, and pulled the trigger, killing him instantly. He covered the man with a blanket and went back out to Samkid. He ripped off her nightgown and dragged her to the kitchen where he found a knife. But instead of stabbing her, he used it to cut the cord to the hairdryer and tied her hands with it. He then dragged her to the bedroom where her husband lay deceased in their bed and raped her. After a horrible marathon session of a variety of different assaults that I'll spare you the detail of. Thank you. He demanded she tell him where the valuables were. She told him and he dragged her with him as he recovered different pieces throughout the house. Excited still, he raped her again and then told her he wanted to look in the garage for, for cash. Finding only $15 in Chanarong's wallet under the driver's seat, he finally decided he'd gotten everything he could. He brought some kid back in the house, filled one of their suitcases with everything he'd stolen, and left. Oh my god. It literally turns my stomach. Me too. Like hearing the shit that he did. I... I feel like I'm pretty calloused with listening and reading true crime ones, and I will say... This particular episode with this case that I'm reading, this, this scenario I'm reading and um, a couple, I'll tell you when I get to it, there's two in this that just 
like you said, turn my stomach. Yeah. And um, again, I, I think I'm pretty cold when it comes to reading details and talking about it. I think I've been exposed to a lot, but these ones just really... Yeah, this and upset me toy yeah. box. But again, yeah. you spared us a lot of those yeah. details in yeah. toy box. But yeah, it's like t- literally turning my stomach. Mm-hmm. It's it's gonna get way worse through this case. So <sighs> I literally yep. can't. Laura. Yeah, I know. I, I know. just can't. Some kid managed to compose herself enough to check on her children, who were okay, and then on her husband, mm-hmm. devastated to learn he was really dead. She ran across the street to the neighbors and called nine one one. Somkid was taken to the hospital while the detectives arrived, but it wasn't Frank and Gil. This attack was so far north that it actually wasn't initially connected to the Night Stalker. Mm. Investigators found no fingerprints, but they did find an Avia footprint. Despite this, the murder was still not tied to Night Stalk- the Night Stalker. The next morning, back in Sun Valley, Julie Needing went to check on her parents, who were supposed to meet her for breakfast. She let herself in and was immediately worried when she saw the condition of the house. She hesitantly walked down the hall to her parents' bedroom and only needed to glance at their bodies in the blood to realize she needed to call 911. Glendale police arrived, but like the Kavananth murder, this was not immediately connected to the Night Stalker. Fortunately, the coroner responsible for Chainarong, Leela, and Max's autopsies did contact Frank and Gill. So on July 21st, just a day after the attacks, the detectives went to talk to Samkid. She bravely told them what happened and helped create another sketch, which of course matched that of Carol's and Maria's. Oh my gosh. This sketch went out to every cop in the greater LA area, and by that evening, the Night Stalker was all across the news in California. So you're telling me the sketch was better than a faceless egg shape? <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah. The very first, like when Maria first did a sketch and then Carol did a sketch, they didn't match. And then um, when Carol's attack happened and they went back to Maria's, they she redid hers and it looked like Carol's. And now they're all okay. kind of... Even independently, they're all kind of matching. So I think they got a better artist is what I think happened there. Perfect. Things seemed to be moving quickly for the investigation. The next day, Gil and Frank were informed that ballistics came back with the confirmation that the gun that had killed Veronica Yu and Dale Okazaki were the same same as the one that had been used to kill the Needings. So they've now connected all that. They also now understood that the killer was using multiple weapons for a variety of different types of victims mm-hmm. all across L.A. Right. They needed help. So they called in Agent Bill Hagmeyer from the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit to help them create a profile. Great. He did, but he also noted that this was just the first of its kind. Oh, which wow. Which is crazy. You don't want to hear that from the FBI. No. They're like, well, we're stumped. Yeah, literally. <laughs> I can only imagine being like, okay, perfect. I think they had a, an idea of that, though. Right. I think they knew that just the variety of the crimes, the victims, where they were happening... Like the the only consistencies were the violence of it um, and entering at night, but just so many differences. The Night Stalker wasn't going to stop, but he did decide it wasn't safe to try to hit the same areas. On August 6th, he found himself in Northridge, 25 miles outside of L.A. He pulled off the highway into what might have been the most idyllic neighborhood yet and parked in front of the home of Chris and Virginia Peterson. Chris, who was 38, and Virginia, who was 27, were a loving couple who worked hard to have the home that they did for their five-year-old daughter. Chris worked as a warehouse manager, Virginia as a U.S. postal clerk. Okay, it's not any better when they're not 60. No. Nope. Their well-kept home had three large windows in the front, through which the killer could see that the house was quiet. Chris and Virginia had gone to bed, but left the living room light on because their daughter was afraid of the dark. The killer tried to enter through the front door, but it was locked. As usual, he walked around back and checked the slider. It was open. What? 
lock your sliders. I know. I know. They just, I think, are in denial over they're reading about this and hearing about these atrocious crimes and just thinking it can't happen here. Okay. You it know? doesn't happen here until it happens here. Lock well, exactly. your doors. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, did you sleep with your windows open last night? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But my doors are locked. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So the killer confidently strode, strode inside and down the hall to the Peterson's bedroom. Virginia, a light sleeper, awoke to the sound of the gun cocking. She tried to tell him to get out, but he shot her point blank under her left eye. Amazingly, she wasn't killed, but she just obviously really didn't know what had happened. Right. Chris woke to the sound of the gunshot and tried to get his bearings. Virginia told Chris that she thought the man had shot her with a stun gun, and as she turned to him, he saw the gunshot wound that had removed half her face. Oh my god. As Chris registered what was happening, the killer shot him in the right (sighs) temple. The killer fired a third shot toward Virginia, but missed. All of the commotion woke the Peterson's daughter, who began crying. Oh no. Chris, see all this just makes me want to cry. Chris was somehow still alive and conscious, and he desperately tried to save his wife and daughter, knowing he was the only thing in between them and death. He lunged at the intruder, but the man easily shook him off and ran back out through the slider. The killer considered going back in and finishing the job, but was worried that the gunshots had alerted the police, so he got back in his car and left. Oh my god. So I do think that Chris actually fought him, even though he, like, the killer was able to get away, I think just him being there and not giving up, I think saved all their lives. She survived missing half her face? Virginia managed to get up, so not only did she survive, she managed to get up and run to a neighbor's for help, but they weren't home, so she came back and called 911. As an aside, I noticed a lot of these say that the neighbor they went to a neighbor's for help, and I just think how different that is. This wasn't that, I mean, in my mind, it's not that long ago. It was in the mid-80s. But how different from now, where my first reaction would be to get on the phone right. and call, not to go to someone else's. But I think that was just like you went to your... Neighbors. Yeah. There was so. more of a sense of community, yeah. I think. Now, unable to wait, Chris instead decided to put his wife and daughter in the car and just drive them all to the hospital himself. Oh, my gosh. And he was shot in the temple. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, my God. Amazingly, they would both make a full recovery. Insane. Evidently, thanks to the fact that the ammunition that the Night Stalker had used was old, so the gunpowder wasn't as potent. So when he had shot Chris in the temple, the bullet hadn't penetrated his skull because he would have died for sure. And the bullet that entered Virginia's face had gone through the roof of her mouth and down her throat, exiting at the back of her neck, but missing her brain entirely. Mm-hmm. I cannot function. Uh-huh. Yeah. But she, they survived, and they, I mean, aside from the obvious trauma and, oh. like, the, that side of things, but they were fine. My, physically. My, I, I can't function right now. My brain cannot mm-hmm. process mm-hmm. how lucky mm-hmm. you could be, and Chris saved their lives. I, I fully oh. believe that, because if he hadn't intervened, I think that you would, it just, but it would have been the same as any of the other ones I've read. So Gil and Frank were notified quickly about this attack, and despite the fact that it was a 25 that was used instead of the 22, there were no shoe prints and no ransacking, they still just felt this was the, the work of the Night Stalker. Mm-hmm. Well, they saw him, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, true. That's true. Yep. Two days later, he was back out on the freeway, this time 30 miles east of downtown LA on the other side of the city from Northridge. As usual, he stopped off at an upscale community, this time the town of Diamond Bar in La Brea Canyon. As with Northridge, the residents of Diamond Bar knew of the Night Stalker, but felt they were far enough away to be, um, that they weren't within his sights. 
He stopped in front of a beige house that sported two large picture windows on either side of the front door. Though the windows were locked, the sliding glass door in the back was not. Mm. Like the Kavanaths, Sakina and Elias Abawath were both immigrants. Sakina, who was 27, was Burmese, and Elias, who was 31, was from Pakistan. Elias worked as a computer programmer. Sakina worked, too, as a medical technician, but was on leave because they had just welcomed another baby boy into the family 10 oh, weeks before, oh my joining God. their three-year-old. This is my least favorite oh, no. one to talk about. It's, it, I'm going to just say up front, the baby's fine, just okay. because I just... Okay, thank you. And the three-year-old, like, the kids are okay. Okay. Um, but it is, this one really turns my stomach, I think, more than any, any case I've read. Um, the intruder surveyed the quiet house. The three-year-old was asleep in his room. Elias and Sakina were asleep in theirs with the baby in the crib by their bed. Sakina had just gone back to sleep after feeding the baby. It was 2.30 in the morning. The intruder walked over to Elias, quickly put the 25 to his head, and pulled the trigger. The loving husband and father of two was killed instantly. Before Sakina knew what was happening, the man jumped across Elias and straddled her, punching her in the face. He flipped her over and handcuffed her, telling her, don't scream, bitch, or I'll kill you and your kids here and now. He then blindfolded her and gagged her, continuing to throw punches and almost knocking her unconscious. He demanded she tell him where the valuables were, which she did once he removed the gag from her mouth. After he was satisfied he had retrieved anything of worth, he turned his attention to the bleeding mother. He ripped off her clothes and forced her to perform oral sex on him before raping and sodomizing this poor woman who had just given birth two months before. Oh, my God. It makes me so sick. Mm-hmm. Her three-year-old woke up and started crying. She begged the intruder to let her take care of him, which he allowed. She somehow managed to calm the child who fell back asleep. Oh my God. With that distraction gone, the killer dragged her to another room where he continued beating her before raping her again. During this attack, her son came in, having awoken again, and said, Daddy's not waking up. The night stalker grabbed the three-year-old and tied him to the bed, putting a pillow over his head to muffle his cries, and then resumed his attack on Samkid. When he was done, he let her go to her child while he went to the kitchen and calmly ate some melon he found in the fridge. What the fuck? He went, from, he went back to Samkid and for some reason told her he had just knocked out her husband. I don't know why he felt... I don't, I don't know that this person felt any guilt whatsoever, but no, no. he then blindfolded and gagged her again and asked her if she had any more valuables. When she said she didn't, he dragged her back to her bedroom and raped her next to her dead husband. Oh my God. After he was done, she tried to lay on Elias to protect him, thinking he was just unconscious. She begged the man not to kill him, and the night stalker told her, he's all right. I just punched him and knocked him out. Oh. With that, he brought her back to the room where her son was, handcuffed her to the door, and then left. Oh, my God. I need a breather after that one. I mean, that was... I'm throw it, up. It really makes me sick. Just all of, the, all of them do. But for some reason, this one just... Well, there's a kid that's awake. Yeah. And, and just like a part of this. I guess I just think of like that first bit, a few months with like your newborn. Yes, you are. That maybe that's exactly what it is. It's just you're so vulnerable and helpless and desperate to just like it's your family so extra important at that time Mm -hmm. and it really just makes me want to cry and throw up oh and the dad died (sighs) yeah um so some kid could really just barely reach her son to untie him she told him to go try to wake up elias thinking that he was still alive she could hear him pleading daddy wake up but to no response 
helpless, somehow convinced her, she somehow convinced her sweet three-year-old to leave the house by himself in the dark and knock on the neighbor's door for help. Oh my God. The brave child did as he was told, telling the bewildered neighbor that his daddy wouldn't wake up. The neighbor, a gentle man named Bob, went over to the Abuath's house and immediately went, went to help Samkid. She begged for him to go and check on Elias. He had the horrible job of telling her that her husband had died and then called 911 for help. Even when the police arrived, Samkid refused to accept that Elias was dead. Once the handcuffs were off her, she ran into the bedroom and shook him, only then realizing he was gone. She then turned her attention to her baby, who was still soundly and safely sleeping in the crib beside the bed. Thank God. I know. I think she, because at first I was like, I'm surprised she wasn't paranoid about the baby, but I think, I suspect there's just something in her that like knew she would have known. Right. That she knew that he wasn't doing anything to the baby. Yeah. So I think that's why she was more concerned. Um, but anyway, this amazingly strong woman, which like doesn't even do it justice, that description, but was able to give a description of the man who had attacked her as well as what happened. So the police knew without a doubt this was the work of the Night Stalker. I hate that. I hate that so much. I don't have any, I don't no. have any words. For, I have no commentary for that one. It's bad. Mm-hmm. Gil and Frank arrived to the Abawath house a little after five in the morning. As they had too many times before, they scoured the house for evidence. And as always, they found no fingerprints. They did notice a shoe print, but interestingly, it wasn't the Avia. Oh, he okay. bought new shoes? Mm-hmm. As, but on his own. just I think he just wore a different pair of shoes that oh. day. Mm-hmm. As they were continuing to look through the crime scene, they received a call from the San Bernardino police saying they thought they had the Night Stalker in, in arrested. He looked exactly like the composite sketch and had been picked up at a porn shop. Gil and Frank drove right over, but were disappointed to find that that's where the similarities ended. Oh. The man being held had good teeth, didn't smell, and had the wrong size feet. Oh. Another miss, another opportunity for the Night Stalker. Amazing that that's what gets you out of custody. Yeah. They're like, breathe on my face. Oh, no, you brush your teeth. You're good. <laughs> yeah. Let me see your feet. No. It's no, like those are modern wrong. Modern day who's got the tape measure? <laughs> <laughs> yep. He knew they were really looking for him now. He had seen the press conference where they talked about the home invasion in Diamond Bar, how it was connected to his other crimes, and that the public needed to be on the lookout no matter what part of L.A. they were in. But they didn't know it was more than just L.A. that had to worry. The killer thought it was smart to cool it in L.A. for a while and headed north to San Francisco, where people were certainly afraid of what they were hearing on the news, but they truly didn't believe they were in danger. Right. In a stolen Mercedes-Benz on the cool early morning hours of August 18th, the killer stopped in front of a yellow two-story home. This unsuspecting home belonged to Peter and Barbara Pan. Peter had been born in Taiwan. He was a kind man whose energy was contagious. He had attended the Wharton Business School in Philadelphia, which, first of all, is impressive already, mm-hmm. before returning to Taiwan to work for a railroad company. After that, he started his own import-export business in Hong Kong. He met Barbara there, and then the two immigrated to San Francisco in 1969, where Peter worked as an accountant and Barbara as a bank teller. Both in their 60s now, they had two sons and three grandchildren and were soon going to retire. Mm-hmm. I have to make one joke because I need to like get myself out of this dead, awful hole that I'm in. Uh-huh. Do you think he was like uh, scouring like people's financial records of who's going to retire soon? Like, who's due for retirement? I'm going to go to these homes because it's really uncommon. Or... Like, uncanny, I mean. Or are 60-year-olds out shopping for beige 
two story yeah. yellow houses. Seriously, I don't know. With, beige with, and yellow? with windows. Yeah, beige and yellow with and with curtainless big windows in the front. Yeah. I don't know. It's really. It's really weird that all of those like retire like soon to be retirees yes. live in those houses. Yeah, I don't know. exactly. So I had to. That wasn't even a funny joke. I just had to do something that was not telling you about death. It wasn't even a joke at all. I really? Oh, I know it's bad. Why did I do this case? I don't know. It's really I, terrible. I will say I forgot just how bad it was until I was rereading that book because I knew that he was a deranged, deranged man, but I think I really forgot the awful details yeah i think you block it it out yeah i think you really Mm -hmm. you just let it go you can't keep it in your brain no it can't live there no and it's it's out of my brain the second i'm telling you all this because i've spent too long already thinking about it and writing Mm -hmm. this anyway on that august night the intruder calmly walked to the side of the pan's house where he found an open window as was his custom he removed the screen and carefully slipped in he walked upstairs to find peter and barbara sound asleep in their bed Without hesitation, he put the twenty-five to Peter's head and pulled the trigger, killing him instantly. Mm. Barbara woke to the sudden noise, but he beat her before she could react. Wasting no time, he sexually assaulted her, which she fought valiantly. This angered the killer, and instead of fighting her, he just shot her in the head, leaving her for dead. Wanting to further leave his mark, he drew a pentagram on their wall in red lipstick, as he'd done in Ma Bell's room. He then spent a few minutes rummaging through the house looking for valuables, threw what he liked in a pillowcase, and left. It was the terrible misfortune of Peter and Barbara's son, David, to find them later that morning when he stopped by for one of his regular visits. Miraculously, Barbara was still clinging to life. David called the police, and soon Gil and Frank were on the scene. Between the removed screen, the brutal murder and assault, the twenty-five caliber weapon, and the pentagram, there was no question again that this was the Night Stalker. When the detectives returned to L.A., they found that their task force was not the only group interested in these most recent developments. The mayor of San Francisco held a press conference where she told the press all of the evidence they had linking the Night Stalker's other crimes to this one, including the Avia sneakers and the ballistics. Gil and Frank watched helplessly as the mayor leaked all of the sensitive details of their investigation to the public and therefore also the Night Stalker, giving him every opportunity to change his approach and get rid of anything that could further connect future crimes. Oh, way to go, mayor of San Francisco. Yes, yeah, they were livid. And they raised it up the chain and blah, blah, blah. But it was like yeah. the damage was already done. Of course. And indeed, the man was watching. He had known they connected some of the crimes, but didn't realize he'd been leaving the dis- di- the distinctive shoe prints or that they had already identified the new twenty five as his weapon. That night, he walked out to the middle of the Golden Gate Bridge and happily dropped the size 11 and a half of via sneakers into the darkness. Mm-hmm. Despite the investigation closing in on him, the killer brazenly went back to Southern California. He does not give a shit. Not in the least. Because he really, and we'll talk about this um, a little later, but he literally thinks that Satan is guiding him and he can't, he's, Satan's protecting him. And that's why he's able to just get away with all of this. I thought it was because he was a honey badger. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for, thank you for that. You're welcome. I really needed that. I may start crying while I'm laughing, but yes. Oh my God. That's facts. Thank you for that. Oh, he stole another car and resumed his aimless freeway driving. He didn't want to go to downtown LA. He knew that was too hot. So he drove 75 miles South to orange County. He stopped at a beige house with two large bay windows in the front, his favorite. 
It was the home of 29-year-old Bill Carnes, who lived there with his 27-year-old fiance, Carol Smith. Bill worked in computers at the Burroughs Corporation, which he loved for the work and the convenience. It was only a mile away from his house. Bill and Carol had seen the reports of the Night Stalker on TV and considered themselves vigilant, locking all their doors and windows and even considering getting a gun for their own protection. But it didn't matter. The killer managed to get a window open. It was not unlocked, but he was able to get it open in the back of the house Mm. and stealthily went inside. He walked to the bedroom where Bill and Carol were sleeping. The sound of the gun cocking woke Bill, but the killer swiftly pulled the trigger and shot Bill in the head. Just to be sure, he walked forward and shot Bill twice more in the head. Mm. Carol was shaking with terror. The man punched her in the face and then dragged her from the bed. He tied her up and then continued to beat her before ransacking the room. When he'd collected all he could find there, he dragged her to another room and raped her and sodomized her and then immediately demanded that she tell him where the rest of the valuables were. Same story. She did her best to show him and he beat her until she, he felt she had shown him everything. He grabbed the valuables, got back in the car, driving back towards LA. He was always careful about wearing gloves, even in the stolen cars, but that night it was hot and he was excited from his earlier activities. Caving, he took his gloves off for the rest of the drive, which was shorter because he pulled off halfway to L.A. to ditch the car. Before leaving it, he carefully wiped the steering wheel, the shifter, and the rearview mirror. But he missed one, didn't he? (laughs) For the killer, everything seemed to have gone as it had each time before. But this time was different. What the man didn't know was that when he had parked and walked to Bill and Carol's house... Someone was watching him. Mm. A 13-year-old boy had been out on that warm summer night as the stolen Toyota had finally come to a stop and a creepy-looking man had gotten out. It had gotten the boy's attention, but he shrugged it off. The boy was still outside when the killer returned to the car, and this time the boy thought he'd better get the license plate. He managed to memorize the last three digits, which he went inside and told his parents, who wrote it down. When the details of the attack just up the street made the news, the boy, James Romero III, told his parents more details about the man he'd seen. They immediately reported it to the police who notified Gill and Frank. The same week, a much more hesitant but incredibly important witness came forward. It was a a man named Jesse Perez, a homeless man who often stayed at the Greyhound bus terminal in L.A. He told Gill and Frank that he was nearly positive that the Night Stalker was another man who frequented the area named Rick. He said that he had once witnessed Rick buy a 22. Okay, so that already checks out. Mm -hmm. He knew Rick was a burglar and he had bad teeth and that Rick had once told him about how he'd killed an Asian couple in Monterey Park. Mm -hmm. Got him. Well, none of this was new information. I mean, they knew this all existed. The detectives became excited when Jesse told them a key piece of information. Rick had been arrested the previous year for stealing a car and then crashing when he was being chased by LAPD. So if they found that report, they'd have the Night Stalker's name. While they were searching for this report, another tip came in from a woman named Donna Myers. Donna said she had a friend named Rick, who she admitted she sometimes bought jewelry from, even though she knew he was a burglar. Hmm. When the reports of the Night Stalker came out on the news, she immediately saw the similarities and became suspicious. But the prices on those diamonds were literally. Good. She was like, I'm so sorry, but they're really great. <laughs> Uh, she confirmed that he had bad teeth and then even told them that her brother Greg had sold Rick an old 25. Detectives managed to get her to find out Rick's last name and she gave it to them. Ramirez. Things were looking up for Gil and Frank. Mm -hmm. Then they got the promising news that the stolen Toyota had been found. It had its license plate had three digits that matched what James Romero and his parents had reported. 
investigators scoured the car for prints. The killer had wiped down the car thoroughly, but not perfectly. Mm -hmm. He missed just one single fingerprint on the rearview mirror. Investigators dusted the print, put it through the computer, and bingo. They had a match to one Richard Munoz Ramirez. They must have been so jazzed. Yep. Oh my gosh. And I'll tell you all about that (sighs) in part three. I saw the pages (laughs) dwindling and I was like, it's coming. It's coming. I know. I I debated doing this just as two parts, but I really, as I said in part one, I really wanted to talk about each of the victims Mm -hmm. and give them their moment and not make it a roll call. Right. Um, And then there's a whole lot in part three. We will talk about who this Richard Ramirez is um, and then what the police were able to do and all the crazy things that happened at that point. But now, you know, although I have a feeling most of you who knew who who he was already were the the Night Stalker is Richard Ramirez. Damn. So that's, that's what we've got for today. Um, okay. I'm going to go cry in a corner. I know that was so. a real, it was a, that was a lot like, um, heavy. I mean, I knew it was going to be heavy, but it was a lot heavier than I expected. I think that that's it for talking through those crimes. So next part will be, I can't say lighter, <laughs> but in a different way. Um, I need so. to like sage my house and eat some yeah. ice cream and but maybe watch like a comedy movie with your doors and windows shut and locked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, Hey, if you're enjoying Graham, <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> I'm not either, actually. This was miserable. <laughs> Make sure you're getting the most in between episodes. You can find us on Instagram at Grim Crime Podcast and on Facebook, just search Grim, a true crime podcast. Or even better, you can subscribe to our Patreon by searching Grim, a true crime podcast on the Patreon app or website. Depending on the tier you choose, you'll get a shout out like we did at the beginning of this episode. You'll get bonus episodes and even access to our supremely awesome Discord server. You can send us an email at grimcrimepodcast at gmail.com. And that's also where you can send us case suggestions or you can DM us, whatever works. Wherever you do listen, please rate us or even better, leave a written review. Thanks for being here. And remember to listen, learn, and stay alive until next time because the future is grim.